Hi, everyone. So, um, um, whether he knows it or not, Ed's actually been uh, giving me some words that are pretty important to me because they've kind of, uh, I guess you could say, held, held me together in hard times. Um, and I've always found, find, found his words to be incredibly helpful in my life. And one thing I've noticed is that, like, that he cares about uh, what people are going through, like, and he'll address that in a loving way, sometimes very direct, but, and sometimes he uses humor. But, um, you know, he says what needs to be said. So um, um, he's a prophet of the Lord. I, I know that, you know, he probably doesn't want to be introduced as the, the prophet, but, you know, um, but um, he is a prophet of the Lord. And, um, um, and I just invite you all to open your hearts and just let the Lord speak to you through him. Um, so if, uh, Ed, uh, can you come up? Yes, please. Thank you. Take a seat down. Thank you. Maybe I don't know. I don't feel faint yet. All right. My name is Ed Trout, T-R-A-U-T. Is das ist Deutsch? Gibt da jemand Deutsch reden können heute Abend? Kannst du Deutsch? Ein bisschen. Gibt da jemand über Deutsch reden? Bist du Deutsch? Wo kommst du her? Bitte? Niederlands. Hollandsprache. Käse. Käsefritte. Ja? Kannst du Deutsch? Wo kommst du her? Wo dann? Wie dann? Wie hast du Deutsch gelernt? Elton, Elton Deutsch, oder? Schön. Okay, so that's how you'll speak when you finally go to heaven. <laughs> of Nederland. Nederlander. Um, I was born and raised in Cape Town, South Africa. My mother is a German Jewess who exiled the Holocaust with her family on a refugee ship that left the northern part of Germany, just north of Berlin, and ended up in Cape Town where I was born and raised. At the age of 13, I gave my heart to Jesus five Sundays in a row. They preached the hell out of me. They really did, hellfire and brimstone. I was a Pentecostal pastor for some time and years later, and then God called me to the prophetic ministry some 36 years ago, and I've been traveling the world doing just that and nothing else. I average between 28 and 30 meetings a month all around the world who travel. I have one wife for 42 years, and she has... I give her all the credit for us being together because she's the glue. She's absolutely amazing woman, very stable. Uh, she gets on my nerves, but I can't live without her. She's still my personal driving instructor. Apparently, I don't know when to turn or put the blinker on or go slow or faster. Even coming here, just instructions all the way. Then I, <laughs> we, have three, we have three children and we have nine grandchildren. If I'd known how much fun grandkids were, I would have skipped the children and gone straight for the grandkids. Yes, indeed. I'm not religious. I was very much a Pentecostal preacher. I also preached Hellfire and Brimstone. And then God set me free, and I am everything but that. I'm sorry. I'm very down to earth. I love the Lord. I love the church. And I'm here to be a, a life source to you and present Christ to you and bring encouragement to your soul, if I may. 
All right. If you will also go on our website, propheticlife.com, you may sign up for a free daily devotional that I write every day if you want to be part of that. It's just a scripture, a few little pointers, a picture, and a prayer. It'll take you maybe 30 seconds to work through every day. It'll help strengthen your soul. And what I do mostly is train people in the prophetic. I'm very zealous for the prophetic to be healthy and balanced. There's a lot of strangeness out there that I have a hard time with, and especially disconnected from the church. And that's really bothersome to me because I believe that's very important to the Lord, the gathering of the saints. Internet's wonderful, and I'm glad you're watching today, and that's no problem. But there's much more power when we gather in his name. We must be together. It's important to the Lord. All right. No, it's a bit late now. We've I'm going to uh, thank you very much, though. I've got your name. Brent, that's right. Thank you. All right. <laughs> so I'm laughing like, what is wrong? My hard drive is full. It just doesn't maintain much. If you'll turn your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 22. Jesus is the love of my life, and for three years he had a ministry very focused. He was born into a very precarious, intense era in the history of Israel. And when he called disciples, he had a very much a specific strategy that he called disciples. He had about 70 that he called to follow him. Of the 70, he selected by a time of prayer through the night, he selected 12. They were not the most wonderful people. People always think disciples of as the most fantastic people. They were a bunch of idiots as far as I'm concerned. And they were, they were not old, rotund men with beards. They were young kids, a lot of them, younger than Jesus. I can show you scriptures to show you all where I get my information from. I'm a Bible fanatic. But you had, for example, Judas, one of the twelve, who was from the beginning a betrayer, from the beginning a bookkeeper, when there's never money. Always even have to get money out of fish to pay taxes. He's never money and he's the bookkeeper. Then you had the sons of thunder, James and John, who were with a called from left their father, who was with the fishing nets. That means they were pretty young still. And they were not married, whereas Peter was just married, had a mother-in-law. So Peter was about 24 and John maybe about 19. And they were called the sons of thunder. They weren't that great either. Because here they are, Jesus is telling of the sufferings and how he must die and suffer with the, in the hands of the Pharisees. And all John and James can think about, if you're going to die, who's going to be at the left and right in heaven with you? Can we book that now? It's either use us or lose us mentality. These weren't the most influential. And then, we, of course, we had Thomas. My goodness, Thomas. You know, it was a strange one. He didn't believe anything until he could feel for himself the hands of Jesus. Always a bit on the negative side. You only know about him doubting, wanting to feel Jesus' hands, but he had negative all the way through. He was negative, always whining about something. And I can show you in the scriptures about that too. And then there was Peter. Peter was very needy like many of us. Uh, he was born younger brother to Andrew. He was married and he was, had struggles in his life. You can see by his behavior that he was desperate for the approval of Jesus. He was the first recorded to acknowledge him as son. And because I'm Jewish, I know that my Goya friends don't understand the full understanding of what really goes on with Jesus and why he was so, um, so outsider or so hated by the Pharisees. Because for thousands of years, we pray 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And now suddenly, after all these thousands of years being one God, he suddenly had a son who came from Nazareth. And you can see him, and that's very hard to swallow, especially in the time that they were predicting, anticipating the Messiah, the Hamashiach, because of all the different scriptures they were looking for and desperately needing a deliverance from the hand of the oppressed and oppressing Romans. It was a horrible influence in their lives, and they were under a lot of pressure, so they're looking for a savior. The savior that came, came so differently, so quietly, so... So obscure, not visible, not as any king would come, born in a, not a stable, as some people try to imagine. He was born in a house, but it's very common to have the stable or the animals in the bottom floor and the people live in the top floor. Very common to do that, and that's where he, there was no room at all, so he had to stay at the bottom with the animals. That's the only place there was, it was warm and dry. And, of course, they used the manger to put him in because there was no place for a bed for him. And that's what the angels told the shepherds to find him. Are you with me still? Please don't get so too excited. It's overwhelming. <laughs> so these disciples, this Peter was very needy. He's the only one of the 12 that wants to walk on the water. The other 11 didn't even think about it. Peter just fed the 5,000. It wasn't Jesus. Peter fed the 5,000. He said, what do we have to feed them? And they said, we have a little fish and bread. Bring it, he says. Prays over it, divides it, and gives it to the disciples. Go. Peter had to go with his fish head and piece of bread and feed between Jesus and the crowds. Something happened in his heart. So the next morning, having seen him go up on the mountain to pray and come down walking in the water, he wanted to do another supernatural thing. And no one in his right mind leaves a perfectly good floating boat Every Christian knows you only walk on the water when there's no boat anymore or it's sinking. You only influence, only trust God when you really have to. As the last resort. Not Peter. He got out of the boat and if he was at least a little spiritual from Northern California, he would have at least asked for a confirmation. He got a prophecy that said, come, and that was it. If he was from Southern California, more spiritual people, that he would have asked to put out a fleece. <laughs> oh, I'm putting one leg out of the boat, Jesus. If that's really you, I'll, know, I'll feel something sort of this side. That's my fleece. And if he was a, a spiritual man from a religious order, he would have at least had a church board meeting. <laughs> what do you guys feel about me walking in the water? James and John, what are your short-term, long-term goals are you wanting to start a walking in the water ministry? What do you want to do with this ministry? Walking in the water. And then there was Judas. We don't have the finance. If you drown, we cannot find your body or replace you. And then there was Thomas. What if it's not the Lord? What if it's the Lord but not God's timing? Judas always, he didn't think he began to walk. And when he did begin to think, he began to sink. And then we find him when it, washing disciples' feet. Jesus comes, reaches Peter, and Peter says, Don't wash my feet, I must wash yours. After washing all theirs, why, Peter? Because I, need you, I must wash yours. Well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part. Wash all of me then. You had to be special. He was so desperately needing an approval. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he wants to build a tent. Why? I mean, did Moses and Elijah need a tent before? No. Why you want to? No. Who knows? When they come to arrest Jesus, he's got a sword in his hand. He can't even kill one Roman. Nicks the man's ear off, he does. I mean, he's just such 
a pitiful man in so many ways, yet Jesus gives him very high profile. And he says to Mary, go tell the disciples that I've risen and Peter. Peter was very important to Jesus. And you wonder why. You have to question and understand because I've, I study the Lord all the time. I, I follow him and I study his life and I try to see him through the eyes of so many disciples. For example, in my recent studies, I found the influence of women in his life is remarkable. The culture of the day was we do not recognize women. They, they're second-rate citizens, so we don't talk about them, even if they're influential. So in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke was not from Israel. He came from Greece, different culture, had no problem putting in the woman that was supporting him financially, including Mary from Magdala, which Magdala was the biggest city, not quite as big as Tiberias, but a big city, much bigger than Capernaum. And she came from that city, and she must have been an older woman, maybe a widow, and wealthy. And she was very delivered and healed by Jesus and spent a lot of her attention, time, and energy in the life of Jesus. That was Mary Magdalene. She was one that went to the grave with, to do, take care of the body. Not mother, of Mary, not mother Mary, which you would have thought that would have been the person to do it, but she was very influenced by him, very involved with him. But she, she was a great financial supporter, as was Herod. King Herod had a palace in Tiberias, just around the corner from uh, Capernaum. And he had a housekeeper, and his wife, who was wealthy, supported Jesus too. So the women were very influential. Now, Mary Magdala started many churches. We never ever hear about it. Very silent, because she's a woman. She was incredibly apostolic and powerfully influential. But they play her down, play women down to this day, people in ministry. Foolish. We need all the workers we can get. We can't waste one, not one. Do you understand? Yeah, it's just, I'm telling you this because it's all in the Word. If you really go and look for it, it's all there. The treasure is all there to be had. Now, looking, looking at Jesus through Peter's eyes, the struggle he had, so wanting the influence, he, he saw that, and John, John writes the book of John much, much later in his life, and five times in the book of John, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Nobody else says that but him. So in his own mind, he's the special one that Jesus loves. Nobody else thinks of that or sees him that way. But it certainly threatened Peter because he was struggling to find approval with Jesus because John was always next to Jesus, physically, always around him. He hung around him. My understanding then is that when Jesus said to each disciple how much he loved them, John really believed it. We struggle to believe when someone says they love you because we've been disappointed by love so many times. Because we have an expectancy when someone says they love us for a certain kind of behavior. They're not allowed to be human, fail, or make mistakes. If they do, we are feel abandoned and love gets torn out of our hearts because it's the plan of the enemy. God is not hope. He's not faith. He is love. The greatest of these is love. God being love is the greatest energy and power of this universe. And the devil will do all he can to disenfranchise you from love, even copy it in a soulish form called being in love. If you listen to the songs that we hear today of being in love, they are so tragic because I bought those shoes that walked out on me. You pick a fine time to leave me, Lucille, with four hungry children. I will always love you. They're miserable, depressing songs of love they're called. And what love does, it brings you to a nostalgic high 
and a crash down burn below. That's not love, it's a counterfeit. God's love is satisfying and full and you need nothing else but Him. If you need someone, you can't possibly love them because 1 Corinthians 13 says that love is kind and patient and seeks not its own. So if you need someone, you can't possibly be loving them because if you love them, then you wouldn't need anything from them. It doesn't matter if they love you back because God's your satisfier. He's the one that loves you. Anybody that expresses love or affection to you is God's tool of love to you. If they go, then God raises up another vessel of love. He's the source of it. But you love people not because they love you or you need them, but because you're so sustained and satisfied in Him. You can say amen to that. Thank you very much. All right. Are you all with me still? All right. Now Peter himself had a struggle, trying so hard to be whatever Jesus would say it could be. And here we're coming towards the end of this, this three-year jaunt with Jesus. And we find in, in John 22, in verse 31, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan. And let me stop there for a moment and tell you that Jesus in his, this short time referred a lot to the devil. I'm so amazed at how much he spoke about the devil. The devil is a very real adversary, very real influence. That's why we've got to watch and pray and be as wise, not as an owl, but as a snake, a serpent, and meek as a dove because the devil has always got a plan. He's so subtle, the Bible says he left Jesus for a more opportune time. Jesus is in the northern part of Israel in a place called Caesarea Philippi in the gates of hell, right on the border of Assyria. He looks around and he asks the disciples, who do men say that I am? Remember that part? And Peter says, you're the son of God. And in his excitement says, blessed are you. And once he sees that Peter understands that he's the son of God, he begins to share with him the purpose of him being on earth. And so he's telling her how he suffers and dies. And Peter's reaction is, no, this will never happen to you. And Jesus' immediate response is, get behind me, Satan. Not talking to Peter, but the spirit that's speaking through him. The same one that acknowledged him, son of God, became a tool of the enemy very subtly to sow something in his heart because it was already a struggle for Jesus. Do not think he was excited about dying in Garden of Gethsemane. He sweat drops of blood and said, can this cup pass from me? That's what he said. Are you listening to me? So when the devil feeds into you, he will feed little seeds inside of you very subtly to get you to be, to be convinced to, to go down that road that is negative. He wants to destroy you. His purpose is to keep you from God. Let me stop and explain to you why. God made billions of angelic beings, perfect in every way, to serve him. Different kinds, different levels, different powers, immortal. Supernatural beings, not hard, easy. God can do it, eyes shut. And he makes one particular one because he was looking for a relationship higher than all the others. Lucifer or Satan or whatever you want to call him. And he chose, because of his freedom, to rebel against God, taking an entire third of the angels with him. So for the first time in the history of creation that we are aware of, God does something different. He does a different kind of creation. This time he takes his own DNA for the first time and reproduces himself. But instead of reproducing a spiritual body that can move and have the mortality like angels, 
He incarcerates this spirit into a carbon-made body from a planet to keep them on Earth so that there is a controlled space, a controlled environment that there may be a gradual growth of relationship that we will choose. But that's all about choosing. For him to have someone love him, they must be able to choose. Angels could not choose. When they chose, they rebelled. So we have to choose to love him. He's, there are all these trees in the garden. I hope you're learning something today. Yes. <laughs> I'm a Bible fanatic, as you can tell. So all these trees in the, in the garden of, of, of Eden, there were two trees are named. Tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Why would God keep us in the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Surely we want to know no stuff. We had new stuff. We ran an entire planet. We had that much knowledge. The knowledge that God was keeping us was from was stuff that would pollute and corrupt the relationship that he was trying to build every day. He came daily not because he only had, didn't have time, but he was waiting for the cycle of the body we lived in so that it would be a right cool of the day, a time that was influential and easy to go small sliver of the day to spend time with God to grow in relationship with him. Now love me enough and choose not to eat of that tree. The first thing they realize when they eat the tree is that they're naked and no value whatsoever information that polluted their relationship with God. I can honestly say at my age I can tell you that ignorance is bliss and the less I know the happier I am. If my children would ask me can I tell you in confidence something I always say no thank you I'd rather not know as once I've heard it I can't unhear it again. There are things I wish I could just unhear in my life and unsee. It just messes me up. So ignorance is truly bliss. I really don't want to know. I'm happy in not knowing. You can call me ignorant and you call me naive. Call me, please call me naive. I want to be naive. I want to know nothing so I can feel happy and contentment in the Lord. Do you hear what I'm telling you? <clears throat> so God made us this way. And unlike any one of us, Satan is an angel, but he wasn't worth much because God didn't die for him. They weren't worth dying for. You are to die for. Do you understand? Think of a being like Satan, powerful as he is, trying to compute that for these pathetic little people on one planet, you would give your life and suffer and die but not for me. I'm not important enough. I'll show you how bad they are. And he works as hard as he can to try and destroy us and separate us. Doesn't He wants to hurt God by keeping us from God and keep you from God. So it's from the day that you receive Christ, it's a war of your faith to try and keep you from God. Because you are so loved of God. They sinned once, those third of the angels. They sinned once. They rebelled against God. And a lake of fire waits for them. You've sinned more than once this week. And you have been redeemed. That's why you should say so. Yes. Am I right? Yes. Now, we read now in the book of Luke, sorry, 22. I hope I'm not boring you. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. Who, does, who did you ask? God. You were there when he was asking God? Yes. He had the audacity to ask. Yeah, he asked God about Job. Had all talked to God. They were always talking about something. So Satan's your accuser of the brethren. He's accusing now. He's accusing Simon. He wants to sift him as wheat. The way you sift wheat, you literally throw it up in the air and let the wind blow up the chaff. But I, Jesus said, thank you, Jesus. I prayed for you. I am so glad he prayed for me. 
could you tell me what you pray? Did you pray I'm going to overcome the death? Slap him. Can I put him under my feet? What, what am I going to do? Simon, I pray that your faith might, might not fail. No, 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 no. Sure, that's, that's it? You prayed my faith? Because when the devil's attacking you, he's not after your health. He's not after your money, your marriage, your job. That's what he's attacking, but what he's after is your faith. What must I do to you to make you think there is no God? What must I do to make you think that God doesn't love you? What must I do to you to make you think God's abandoned you and you're no good and you're not worth anything? There's got to be a place in your life that I can destroy that. But I prayed for your faith would not fail. And when you've turned back, what in the world? Turn back? Turn back? Where am I going to? Why am I going to have to turn back? Strengthen your brethren. I, I don't get the turning back. He says, he says but I, Lord, I'm willing to go to prison or die for you. That's what I've decided. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that I know you. The rooster crows before, at the beginning of dawn, all, most evil happens at night. The Star of David, which you call the Star of David, is actually a mogondobit in Hebrew, which is a shield of David. It's got six points like a sun. There's Israel, Israelites, and we are joint heirs. We are children of the light, walk in the light. Islam has a sickle, and the moon is the emblem, which is they are children of the night. They're exactly the opposite. They don't do things in the day, in the light. They walk in darkness. You better hear what I'm saying. America is not Islamic, and we are not an Islam country. We are a Christian country. Amen. America belongs to, to the Lord, Amen. and I will not be politically correct. There is no other gospel but that of Jesus Christ. Amen. There is no other salvation. If you don't receive Christ... That's the only way to go to heaven. I will never apologize for it. I don't care what Oprah Winfrey said. Are you hearing me? Because I will not be held accountable for not preaching the truth. There's no other way. Hebrews 2 says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Every religion, you've got to blow yourself up, kill yourself, do fast, do nothing, be quiet. But this one, all you've got to do is receive. There's nothing else to do. It's such an amazing salvation. You've got to be brain damaged not to want to be a Christian. It's win, win, win. A lady asked me in Australia, what if what you're preaching is not true? I said, girlfriend, if what I'm preaching is not true and you follow what I preach, you have a fantastic life. It's a happy life. If what I'm preaching is true and you don't follow it, you lose everything. So why wouldn't you? You've got nothing to lose. Nothing. Right? That's why. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So now let me understand. You know that he's going to deny him, and you're telling him, but you're not stopping him. I, I, I don't get it. Could you explain this to me, Jesus? Do you understand what this man's going to go through because of the shame and the guilt of them? Surely, Lord, you could, I mean, if it happened, you could help heal his life. But why wouldn't you stop him? Why didn't God just stop you leaving that day five minutes and you ask God, Lord, tell me this is the right person. I don't want to marry this person. You've got to confirm this to me. This is the right job. This is the right. You've asked God and you could 
frustrated with God because he didn't confirm and it all messed up. You got quiet on me now, y'all. Why would Jesus not stop him? If the Lord told me that tonight I'll deny him, I'm in that bathroom with masking tape on my mouth, I'm locking that door, and I'm waiting for that sun to come through that window. But this man went straight into it. No, Lord, yeah, you will. And he said, to, and he restored him before he fell. He said, and when you come back, when you turn around, he hadn't fallen yet. So let me understand, Jesus, you know he's going to deny you. And let me tell you, it's not a small thing. We want to make it all small. But Jesus said, if you don't acknowledge me before man, I will not recognize you before the Father. That's what Jesus said. So the severity of denying Jesus is very big. And he said, you're going to do this very thing tonight and you'll come back. And when you come back, I want you to strengthen the brethren. Now, wait a minute. He's going to fail. You okay with that? And you want him to come back and then he must help the other. Who is going to listen to that idiot? He's going to say, now, brethren, be encouraged. And they're going to go, yeah, you're the one that denied the Lord. Who's going to listen to you? Right? He's going to stand there knowing that they know, that he knows that they know, that he lied, deceived, messed up, sinned. At the crucial time, number one guy, number two, one, two, he denies the Lord in a crucial, and he said, now, now he's going to encourage them who didn't deny him. Have you ever felt shame and guilt in your life for things you wish you hadn't done? Why didn't the Lord just stop you? Sometimes you were very stubborn, you sowed some bad seeds and reaped them. I understand that. You made bad decisions. But there were times that you really didn't want to do. You tried so hard not to. And you got quiet in this place. There are things in your life you just don't know why God allowed that to happen to you. You were serving Him and stuff happened. You made such a mistake. I was saved when I was 13. I wasn't saved from, from sin. I didn't know what sin was. I was 13. I got filled with the Holy Ghost, spoke in tongues on fire for God. Then I sinned. No excuse. And then he still forgave me, making me love him all the more. What an amazing gospel. It's to be different. One thing to be saved from sin, but be saved and then then to sin is a whole different thing. And God makes room for all your failures. And listen to me carefully now. You don't miss what I'm going to tell you. God is not stressed by your weaknesses, but he doesn't like your wickedness. Judas was wicked. Peter was weak. He said, and one of you is a devil. Well, it's not just Judas can deny the Lord. Peter's can deny you too. No, Judas only betrayed him once. Peter denied him three times. But why is he not a devil? Because this Judas had made a clear, sober decision. No weakness. He decided it wicked. Peter was weak. He said, no, I'm willing to go to prison for you. I'm going to die for you. So often we've purposed not. We're never going to do that again. I'm not going to ever do this and do that again. Then it happens again. You feel, what wretched man that I am. Who's going to save me? Things that I ought not to do, these I keep doing. Sound familiar? (laughs) Not stressed at all. In fact, he says, and when you come back, I want you to encourage the brethren. Really, where am I going? Uh, <laughs> you're gonna fa- you couldn't stop him, Jesus. You couldn't strengthen him. This is a ter- for the eternity, this is going to be recorded. I walk into heaven and go, hi, you're Peter, right? You're the guy that was sinking and denied the Lord, right? <laughs> I mean, really, 
it's, it's not going away anytime soon. And the Lord's not stressed about it. So you can quit feeling shame and guilt for your struggles. You can rather come clean with it. Doesn't mean you must stop fighting. It was just not feel guilt and shame. It's the wickedness God hates. What's wicked in our life? Hatred, unforgiveness, bad attitudes, deliberate, deliberate rebellion against God. That's wickedness. But when you struggle and you're weak and you keep faltering, he is not stressed. You got very quiet and I'm not sure why y'all are so quiet in this place. <laughs> I'm teaching you the love of God and how much he loves you and he's not stressed by your weaknesses. And don't you be judging someone else because they're weak. Don't be excusing what they do. Just love them. Help them up. Amen. You know, the righteous fall seven times. The righteous. Those are in right standing. Those that are a bit weaker fall a lot more. But they get up. So if you're a Christian, you have two positions. Getting up and standing up. Never laying down. So I'm here to tell you, don't feel sorry for yourself. Get up. Your little, oh, I'm the bad man. doesn't work for me. Just get up. Just get up. <laughs> That's all I say. And if you want to have a good reputation, no such thing. Even the best Christian thinks that they haven't fallen. Let me tell you, Jesus told a parable that was well commonly told amongst the Jews about the prodigal son. They make him out to be the hero of the story, but actually he's the idiot, as his brother was. The father was the hero. He had two sons, two sons. The one young one, young, excusable because he's not so smart, takes the money and wastes it. And the Bible says when he had nothing and nobody gave him anything, he came to his senses. People don't repent while you're helping them. While you rescue your kids, they don't repent. It's always a way out. Then they don't ever come to their senses. You've got to let them suffer a little bit. As God did you. Don't like it, do you? <laughs> God corrects those he loves. Not punishes. Corrects. Correction is very necessary if you're to stop hurting yourself. And if you really love someone, let God correct them. Get out of the way. Because you're helping empower them to prolong their suffering. Because as soon as they take the correction and change, the better they'll be. Circumcised heart. That's God's way. I'm not telling you what's not in the Bible. Are you, are you with me? The prodigal son comes back and he's, he's, he was definitely not American. The prodigal son was not American. Because had he come back, he would have sued his father for letting him go in the first place and giving him money. That was, he was too young and he was so impressionable, the father should have known better. He would have sued him and won. The prodigal son's brother, that man really messed me up because he'd never sinned. He said, I've worked, I've slaved for you and I've never disobeyed you. He was proud that he'd been to church all the time, tithed, and never done anything wrong. He was so proud, and in God never rewarded him. But they were both sons, both messed up. There are Christians that are, that in their estimation, they are good people. That's sad. That's very sad. You didn't do the things that other guys did. And of course, the Pharisee stood there, thank you God, I'm not a sinner like all the other people. And the Roman beat his breast and said, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And he's the one that Jesus said he went away and repented. That's the way of the cross. That's the gospel. That's the Bible. I'm telling you the truth. If you think that you are without sin, you, and you say that you have no sin, 1 John 1, 9 says, you lie. <laughs> because we are redeemed. 
So we don't judge anybody else, and we certainly don't put that guilt and shame because that's a trick of the devil. You cannot waste the suffering. He suffered terribly for your sins and for your shame and your guilt. Don't make it, belittle it, and petty it because you're not taking all that God died for. Walk in your freedom. Walk in your liberty. If God set you free, He set you free. You're free. Don't keep doing that stuff. Are you hearing me? So now Jesus is completely there for your weakness and struggles. He'll help you up. Just tell him what it is. Tell him the whole thing. Now, I'm going to give you a key tonight to help you through any struggles you may have. The power of freedom, and I believe in deliverance and healing, and I believe the Word of God sets you free, but I believe that when you confess your faults, and confession, you can confess some of it because the devil keeps the rest of it back because of the shame and guilt. But if you confess it all, everything that's in the, everything that's in darkness, bring it to light, it loses all its power, all its shame. There's extreme power in confession. You're so worried that someone's going to reject you, or unfortunately, if we do have, and I was young, we were excited about it when Telegram was introduced and telephone, and of course, Telechristian was the fastest. <laughs> now we have Facebook. You haven't finished talking, it's already all over the world. But so I want you to purpose in your heart as this church, the blazing fire, to purpose in your heart that you will not repeat things even to your husband or wife. If someone confesses to you and unloads on you, that's where it stays, you and God. Otherwise, the devil's got a tool to damage the church continually. Are you hearing me? Become that person that God can use to help people get free. Thank God for the Catholics that have a box that you can say whatever you need to say and get it out and clean, and it will never leave that box. We can take a lesson or two from them. Are you hearing me? We're supposed to be so spiritual, but we gossip and slander so quickly and judge so easily. May we throw that off that we have no judgment at all. No judgment. We, don't, we judge the sin, but not the sinner. Are you hearing me? All right. So in your own life, you went through quite a difficult time and you wonder why God allowed that to happen. Well, God knew it's going to happen and he just incorporated it in the whole program. When he called Peter, he knew Peter's going to mess it up, but he didn't stop calling him anyway. Nothing took God by surprise. So with all your struggles, whatever your children's doing, whatever your wife did or whatever the neighbor did, whatever mistake you've made, God is not stressed. Believe me, I know him personally. Did I teach you anything tonight? Yes. All right. 